Hi everyone, and thank you for tuning in to today's episode. I'm joined by a very special guest, Mr. Mark W. Nelson, the Dean of Samuel Curtis Johnson's Graduate School of Business at Cornell University. Dean Nelson's research examines psychological and economic factors that influence how people make decisions with financial information, interpret and apply accounting, and trade in financial markets. In addition, Dean Nelson has received 10 teaching awards at Cornell and The Ohio State including the American Accounting Association's inaugural Cook Prize for Graduate Teaching Excellence, and is a co-author of Intermediate Accounting. Excited would be an understatement for how I feel about today's upcoming discussion about trading psychology and financial accounting. So without further ado, let's get started. Dean Nelson, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor to have you. It's great to be here, Logan. Great. So just to kick off our conversation, I love to hear kind of your story, how you got into accounting, kind of the psychology, behavioral research area, and how you became the Dean of Cornell School of Business. Sure. So I started like uh, many of your listeners. I I went to undergrad and I got a degree in accounting and I was working as a CPA, but I also had been friends with a professor while I was an undergrad. We were working out in the same sports club, actually, and uh, that got me interested in teaching. And so I went back and got a doctoral degree at Ohio State, and there, there was a a really strong psychology department, and it got really interesting for me to think about mixing uh, psychology and uh, accounting, and to think about how people make decisions with financial information on audits or in financial markets, uh, and maybe how to help them do it better. And so that took me down this road of, uh, of, of learning about that kind of research. Uh, and then I came to Cornell in 1990 because the top person in that research area, a gentleman named Bob Libby, uh, was a faculty member here. And I knew that I would have a wonderful person to work with, uh, being able to work with Bob. Then what happens over time is you, you gradually sort of progress in your career and you kind of become the equivalent of a partner in the firm. You know, you're a, you're a chaired faculty member and uh, there are various leadership opportunities and needs that come up in a school. And a little over four years ago, I was tapped to uh, oversee Johnson. So I'm in the fifth year of my deanship, which means I don't get to do as much teaching and research as I'd like to do, uh, but I do get to help and, and serve in other ways. Great. So, you know, obviously we know that COVID-19 has struck the world by storm, right? And a few months ago, we were all quarantined in our houses. So given COVID-19 forcing many schools to be taught remotely, such as many of the UCs where we are in where I am in California, I was wondering how is Cornell and its business school adjusting and how are things going for you? Well, it's a it's a great question. Uh, Cornell is actually doing quite well. So there was a, a spot on Good Morning America about us, I think, a day or two ago. Uh, we've had a very, very successful containment strategy where Cornell's resources have been mobilized to test all students living on campus twice a week. Uh, we have uh, the, the hotel school's hotel is set aside for quarantine. We, we're really, really uh, seeing our students adhere to the behavioral compact that's that's at the heart of how we're interacting with each other. Uh, so the world we're in right now is that we're doing uh, for Johnston what we call a hybrid model. Well, all of our class, all of our classes are virtual, but we also have opportunities for students to be in class. They're socially distanced. There are fewer students in class that kind of rotate through. 
We have some classes that are uh, some students that are at a distance and are doing all virtual, but we're able to maintain the opportunity for face-to-face instruction. And uh, again, I, I just my hats off to the university uh, under the leadership of uh, President Pollock and, and uh, Provost Kotlikoff to, to mobilize Cornell's amazing resources to be able to do a really good job, at least thus far, of dealing with COVID. Yeah, and you know, obviously. Every, we want everyone to be safe, especially if we do decide to go into uh, full full time, right? Let's say next year. So, uh, ne- my next question is, you know, as the dean of Cornell's business school, what is your role and what is your vision for the school? Yeah, well, boy, we could we could do a podcast on that. Uh, so, my my role really, uh, I have I have different facets, right? So, one way to think about this is that I'm our chief academic officer. I, I oversee Johnson's nine graduate programs. Uh, our faculty report up to me. Uh, I have a staff. Uh, I'm also uh, someone who has a lot of alumni contact, and I sort of nurture that effort. I'm involved in fundraising, uh, and I'm also a citizen of the college and serve on our college's leadership team in the university in various capacities. Uh, and so, so all of those are sort of, of, of part of the role. Uh, it's a really interesting, multifaceted role and, and one that's interesting. Uh, the, the final part that sometimes people don't think about is I'm also running a business. And, uh, you know, Johnson is a complicated uh, school. We have an awful lot of, of uh, people working for us. We have revenue coming in. We have expenses going out. And so I get to practice what I preach. Uh, in, in terms of vision for the school, uh, Johnson should be among the absolute preeminent business schools in the world. And so what that means is that we are serving, uh, we're serving undergraduates in the context of our college. We're serving students in one-year master's degrees, MBAs, executive MBAs. Uh, We're having global reach with with programs throughout the Americas as well as China. Uh, And what I want us to do, uh, both with the impact that we have through our students and through our research, is to lead in business. Uh, and to help people make positive contributions to their societies, their communities, as well as move forward whatever business that they're involved in. So everything that I do is pursuing that objective, focusing on the excellence and the power of our community. Awesome. So kind of getting started with our conversation regarding a little bit of the psychological factors that affect investors in financial markets. I, I was wondering, can you explain the idea behind you know trading psychology and what is the what is the difference between trading psychology and behavioral finance? Is there much of a difference? Yeah, I mean, as those are used, I think trading psychology is when when people are talking about how cognition, but also emotion, affects what people do in a trading context, uh, and so it's it's sort of what's the thought process of an individual engaged in a, a market. Uh, and processing information and, and processing the fact that they're incurring perhaps uh, losses or gains uh, in the moment. That's often when people are talking about training psychology, they're talking about that. Behavioral finance is a much, much broader field uh, that I, I would say includes uh, explorations of, of trading psychology. But behavioral finance is really saying, okay, we've got these standard economic models of rationality. How do we bring in psychology to think about a broader view and a more perhaps descriptive view of how people behave in financial settings. Uh, and you can think of that as, as uh, including 
uh, studies that identify predictable mispricing of securities based on uh, anticipated behavioral tendencies of, of people acting in financial markets. It's a really intriguing field. Cornell has been an absolute leader in this field. Uh, Dick Thaler, who's at the University of Chicago now, recently won the Nobel Prize, uh, mostly for work he did at Cornell. Uh, so so it's, it's something that's been an important part of, of, our, of our DNA for quite some time. Great. So, you know, talking about emotions, we often hear the concept of greed and fear in trading psychology or just trading in general when it comes to specific investing or day trading, right? So can you kind of elaborate on this concept of greed and fear in relation to trade, uh, trading psychology? It's, it's really interesting, Logan, to think about this in, in a few ways. So one is how people respond to uh, gains versus losses, because I think when you're thinking about greed and you're thinking about fear, uh, people are greedy for gains and they fear losses. Uh, and there has been uh, very influential work by uh, uh, Tversky and Kahneman, psychologists, but, but Kahneman also uh, won the Nobel Prize. Uh, and uh, one of the points that, that comes across in that work is that people feel losses more acutely than they feel gains. So you're going to be sadder to lose a dollar than you'll be happy to, to, to win a dollar. Uh, and, and that has predictable effects on how people respond. Uh, so you can imagine that someone who's in that kind of a loss circumstance has, has emotion kick in. And they have fear affecting how they're processing information. They're, they're, they're sort of their lizard brain is kind of taking over. And, and, and that can have dramatic effects on the extent to which they're processing information in a, in a careful, systematic way. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a really important aspect of how people are, are uh, making uh, gains and losses uh, in these markets. And, and one of the things that is a, is a sort of a, a constant drumbeat is that the people who can distance themselves and be more dispassionate and more rational in how they're processing information and, and insulate themselves from fear and greed, uh, they're the ones that long run are going to have the highest gains. Yeah. So I know there's 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 two big differences, right? There's something called a bear market and a bull market. So I was kind of wondering if you could kind of correct me on this, but right, a bear market is usually when the the economy's down, or let's say the stock market and some share prices actually decrease. And would you say that there's more fear there, and that's why they're more conservative? And then while like a bull market, that's when the market's up, that's when the economy's doing well and most stock share prices are actually going up. That's more to do with, that's that's more where the greed, come from, greed comes from. Yeah, and, greed, right? but... and they would kind of go into more shares and more diversity in their portfolio. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a nice way to think about it. I mean, you could say that both of these are, are coexisting at any one time. But in a, in a bull market, uh, greed can, can be a, a pretty strong factor. And sometimes people will talk about bubbles, where a market uh, sort of gets a, a, uh, a will of its own, if you will. And people are not necessarily trading on fundamentals, but they're trading on the idea that the market's going to keep going up. And they don't want to miss out on, on the market continuing to go up. But then when that market turns and they believe that now they're in loss territory, you're right. Uh, you, you go into a bear market, there's a lot of fear. Uh, so, so I'd say both of those emotions are existing 
uh, but but one might have the upper hand at any at any point in time. Yeah. So kind of jumping into a little bit about your research and some of your papers and articles, uh, I was I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your art your paper, uh, the effect of information strength and weight on behavior in financial markets. You and Rob Bloomfield, Bob Libby, and Jeffrey Hales conduct uh, two experiments that demonstrate you know how information strength and weight affect confidence, trading, prices, and wealth in financial markets. Do you mind going into your findings for that or kind of like in general regarding confidence in when you're trading in the markets and how information strength and weight affected all four of those ideas? No, I'm, I'm happy to. It's, it's a really interesting area. Um, one of the things when you go back to this idea of psychology and how psychology rolls through to affect um, uh, how people are trading in, in markets. Uh, the, the basic point of, of this paper was to say that there's the systematic evidence that people tend to focus too much on the uh, extremity of the information that they have. Uh, they, they focus too much on, on having a, 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 an extremely strong, uh, sorry, an extremely uh, uh, positive or extremely negative information signal, and they don't focus enough on the reliability of that, of that signal. And this shows up in all kinds of settings in psychology, where people will, for example, uh, uh, not consider the base rate at which a disease occurs when they're consuming the results of a diagnostic test. Uh, if you have a, a diagnostic test that says that you have a disease, uh, but that test is imperfect and almost no one gets the disease, that, that fact that almost no one gets the disease is, is really, really important. So um, in this particular circumstance, what we're getting at is the idea that imagine a circumstance where people are uh, uh, overreacting to the strength of the information that they have and underreacting to the validity of that information. Well, what's the effect of that going to be? Well, they're going to uh, be trading too aggressively based on high strength, low weight information uh, and too unaggressively based on low strength, high weight information. And so by thinking about the information that people have and both uh, the, the extremity of that information, the, the positive or negativity of that information, but also the, the underlying statistical uh, uh, predictability of that uh, uh, information, you can, you can very, very clearly predict when they're going to trade too aggressively or not aggressively enough. And that then, of course, goes on to drive uh, share prices. So if I, have, if I have information and I'm trading really aggressively on that information, I have a positive low weight signal and I'm buying like crazy and you don't perceive that uh, information to be nearly as positive, uh, I will systematically transfer wealth to you because I'm trading too aggressively on this not very reliable information that I have. And that's at the heart of several studies that I was doing at that point in my career. Yeah, Does that I, make sense? Yeah, I, I believe so because you know, that, that also leads you to your other article, which is like underreactions, overreactions, moderated confidence, right? And you talked about this, this, this idea of a noisy signal, which is like a basic yeah. like slight idea of the reliability of information that you get, let's yeah. say, about a stock such as Amazon or Google, right? And you guys also found that tests 
which I which I found this was the most interesting, right? Uh, market efficiency, right? You guys also found that tests of weak form efficiency can indicate overreactions, even when tests of you know semi strong form efficiency can indicate you know um, underreactions uh, using the exact same data. So uh, basically, right? So weak form efficiency is this idea of basically not being it's not useful to use past share prices right and information that was already incorporated into uh the share price currently the past information would not be useful right and then this the semi-strong efficiency idea is that we assume that stocks adjust really quickly to absorb new public information so that an investor can't really beat the market nor can they benefit when they're day trading is that kind of how it works and then could you go into that kind of idea of like market efficiency and how that kind of affects a trader's confidence? Sure. So one way to think about this is let's go back to this idea that people are bad at, 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 at really being well calibrated about the statistical reliability of their information. And, and one way to think about it, and the way we kind of think about it in this model is that let's just say that, that people aren't good at determining how how good their information is that that regardless of whether their information is really accurate or really inaccurate they're they're sort of treating it all the same okay so you can be reading the wall street journal or you can be reading the national Enquirer. you're just treating it all as news okay so so what does that mean well that means that they're going to be systematically underreacting to good information and systematically overreacting to bad information. Now, what does it mean to overreact or underreact? Again, in our view, it's, well, how, how are you trading? So if you have uh, really positive information uh, and it's really strong, uh, it's really reliable, but you're not, you're not trading aggressively enough on that information, that information isn't going to influence price as much and and so therefore you're not going to be able to look at price and infer that information as effectively as you could if people were trading more accurately what all this means you know when we're talking about efficiency oftentimes we're saying people's private information gets impounded and revealed in share price so you don't need to know that information because the price is always capturing it well it's only capturing it if people are trading reasonably based on that information and if they're not trading reasonably based on that information their private information doesn't go into effect share price and therefore share price can be predictably misstated so this idea of confidence is really well do you feel confident enough to trade and sometimes people are overconfident sometimes people are underconfident does that yeah. seem mm-hmm. sensible yeah so I also find this kind of interesting when your papers you talked about how people if they're you know overconfident or under underconfident they would either basically rely on you know disciplined trading strategies you know such as you know the idea of buy low uh buy low sell high right and i was kind of wondering from your results can you explain you know some circumstances when investors are more likely to you know rely on these distinct you know disciplined trading strategies Yes, sure. So one of the things, and again, it comes back to this idea of overconfidence. People tend to think that they're better at things than they really are, 
right? So uh, we're all, I'm sure, uh, Logan, you and I are both above average drivers. Probably everybody listening to this are above average drivers, right? So, so you have this idea of under of, of overconfidence, and 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 sometimes people will talk about what's called attribution bias, and, and essentially, it's if I'm successful, I attribute that to me being just really capable and smart and hardworking. If I'm unsuccessful, I had bad luck, and the world conspired against me, right? So, success I attribute to me. Failure, I attribute to bad effects. And and that is most uh, pronounced when I'm in the context of a very particular decision. And I've got a lot of information, and I can use that to, to sort of rationalize how well I'm doing. If I take a step back from individual one-shot decisions and think about an overall portfolio, that encourages me to think in general, uh, in general, how good am I at this? How much do I know? That encourages me to move away from the context of a particular decision and more into a more, I'd argue, disciplined, reasonable view of my capability. So the, the project that you're talking about, what it was essentially saying is that if you have people focusing on individual stock trades, that they will tend to attribute success to themselves, failure to luck, think they're better at this than they are, and trade too aggressively on their intuition. On the other hand, if you can have people take a step back and say, you know what? Instead, think about how you've done over the last 20 judgments and, and assess how good you are at this. They might sort of say, maybe I'm not the wizard I thought I was. Maybe I should be using a more disciplined trading strategy that has less of my intuition in it and more of, a, of an appropriate, predictable way of, of, of processing this information. So, so essentially, the idea was, let's, number one, uh, uh, de-bias people and thinking they're so great. And number two, encourage people to distance themselves from individual judgments and use a, a portfolio strategy. And, and that combination, putting those together, uh, had people trade with less overconfidence and come out ahead. Awesome. So, yeah, that's great. So kind of uh, jumping topics into the accounting slash financial accounting aspects, I was wondering if sure. you could kind of explain the different branches of accounting. I believe there are three, cost, managerial, and financial. And could you explain each one and its importance in managing a company's financial assets? Sure. So, so let me give you slightly different categories, okay? What I would say, I would I'd talk about four in terms of of, of the kinds of accounting or accounting related stuff that, that your your listeners might be dealing with financial accounting is one bucket and there you're you're reporting to external stakeholders so you're reporting to investors and creditors uh, about the performance and the position of the company and there are a bunch of rules and standards for how to do that appropriately sometimes other people talk about gap generally accepted accounting principles and that comes into play for financial reporting Second, you'll have uh, internal reporting. And I'd group both cost accounting and managerial accounting in that internal group. There, the idea is, let's come up with accounting systems that help our managers make the best business decisions. How can they figure out how to price their product? How can they figure out what the cost, the real cost is of their product? 
Sometimes the way they think about information conforms to that financial reporting information, but sometimes it doesn't. So it's very much, it's more economically driven and it's more focused on making good decisions as a manager. Third is tax. And tax, of course, is dealing with uh, how do you determine how much you have to pay the government and how typically an idea in tax is within the law, how do you minimize uh, that, that tax that you pay? Uh, and then fourth is audit, is attesting to the accuracy uh, that, that, that uh, people are, uh, are, are, are working towards. So you can audit, you know, there are tax auditors, uh, there are financial reporting auditors, there are internal auditors that examine uh, how people are doing in terms of their internal information processing. And that's a, that's a different accounting related branch, a different discipline. Uh, so all of those are part of life whenever you're managing any kind of a company. Uh, and, uh, and if you're at a, a school with a good accounting program, uh, you'll get plenty of exposure to each. Yeah. So the, fi- the financial reporting aspect, right, this is what I, f- I feel like is one of the most important when it comes to, you know, a company's health or just overall, you know, financial accounting and reporting is, you know, one of the most important concepts is basically the aspect of and the idea of what a, what a cash flow statement is. And we often hear the word cash flow, right? The money going in and out of the company. And we always yeah. think, you know, positive cash flow is essential to any successful company. So can you walk me through what a cash flow statement is and its importance when analyzing a company's financial health? Sure, sure. So let's talk about a few fundamental financial statements. One would be an income statement, which is tracking profitability. But you might make sales and you haven't gotten paid yet. You might incur costs, but you haven't paid someone yet. So that idea of profitability is distanced from cash in, cash out. And that's because there are differences between when we would recognize a sale or an expense and when we would have actual cash transactions. You've also got a balance sheet, and that shows assets, liabilities, and what's left over, owner's equity. And so, you know, what do you have that's worth something, and what do you owe, and and what's left over? Uh, One of the assets that you have is cash. So what a cash flow statement does is essentially reconcile the change in the cash balance over the course of the period. Now, you just said something very insightful, which is, can you have positive cash flow, but still be in trouble? Still, you know, not necessarily be a great company. And the answer is sure. So a cash flow statement is designed to help reveal how that might be happening. And one really key part of it is that it's, it's split into three categories. So there's first cash from operations, and that's cash from doing what you do. Uh, so if you uh, make computers, what's the cash that comes in the door after you pay for your employees and uh, the hardware and your sales function? Uh, what's, what's the cash that's left over? Cash, not, not profit, but, but the real cash flow. But there's also cash from investing. So that's buying and selling machines and facilities and investments. And there's uh, cash flow from from, uh, financing, which is people investing in you, you taking on debt, you paying that debt back. Uh, And so, so now think of those categories, right? You've got cash from operations. 
and then you've got cash from investing and cash from financing. You can imagine a world, for example, where your operations are losing cash, but you're borrowing money to have positive overall cash flow. What would the statement show? It would show negative cash from operations, but positive cash from financing. You can imagine a world where your operations are losing money, but you're selling off assets to keep the lights on. Okay, what would that show? Cash from operations, negative. Cash from investing, positive, as you're disinvesting from these various assets. So by not only showing how the cash balance has changed, but why it's changed, a statement of cash flow can illuminate what's driving those changes in cash flow and help people recognize that there are some changes in cash flow that are exciting and positive events and others that are uh, exciting and negative events. Uh, it helps to illuminate those differences. Yeah, so you were ba- so you were basically talking about right the the investor part giving you know get uh, getting money from them. That's the idea of inflow right and outflow right of cash flow. Yep. Okay. But you can have you can have investors, but you can also have lenders, mm-hmm. right? So I could I could go to a bank and borrow money, or I could go to Logan and say, Hey, Logan, buy shares of my stock. In both cases, I have a cash inflow, and the way the statement would treat it, those would be two different kinds of 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 financing cash flow. Yeah. So, you know, what I found interesting was how important, you know, I started learning about what a cash flow statement was, cash flow, and, you know, this idea of valuation, right? So, you know how, let's say, a venture capitalist or an angel investor invests in a private company, let's say your company, uh, they eventually have to value it in by putting a price on that uh, company demonstrating its worth. And we obviously there's two types of valuations there's intrinsic and relative but usually venture capitalists and investors they use this idea of intrinsic valuation of coming up with an idea of what's the price what what is this company worth and i i hear this tool a lot it's called discounted cash flow and mm-hmm. how people always look at the cash flow statement but then they look at this idea of discounted cash flow and they're like, this is the most essential tool to uh, this idea of valuation, right? And I was wondering, because if you, I, I assume you've probably heard of uh, this new IPO, uh, IPO meaning initial public offering, uh, Snowflake. Have you have you heard of Snowflake? Yeah, yes. yeah. So I was I was wondering, uh, do you mind explaining what is discounted cash flow and you know how does it relate to valuation and counting in general? Oh, you bet. This is a wonderful way to, to, to finish up our conversation. So, so when we think about, so first off, let me, let me expose you to a time machine. Okay. So, so let's take a step here. Let's say, let's say you have a dollar now and you can earn 10 cents on that dollar, uh, 10 cents on the dollar, 10% over the course of the year. Okay. So you've got a 10% return. Well, that means that in a year you'd have a dollar 10, right? Now you keep being able to earn 10%. In two years, you'd have a dollar twenty-one because you'd have your ten cents extra from the first year, but you'd earn interest on that dollar ten the second year, and so you'd have what total twenty-one cents after two years. Uh, that's compounding. You're earning interest on interest. Why is that important? Well, so long as I can say to you, Logan, you can earn ten percent return, let's say risklessly, okay, uh, over these two years then we've created a way to uh, render equivalent cash flows that are happening at different points in time. I, you would be essentially uh, indifferent between receiving a dollar now 
for a dollar twenty-one in two years. See the idea? So we've got these two cash flows that are equivalent. Now, let's say that we're looking at Snowflake, or let's say we're looking at some organization, and we project cash flows all the way out into the future. We're trying to figure out well, what the cumulative amount of those cash flows are today. You wouldn't just sum up all those future dollars. You'd want to know what they're worth in today's dollars. And so you'd say, okay, well, listen, $1.21 is worth a dollar today. So I'm going to do a little bit of algebra and I'm going to, to discount those future dollars back to what they'd be in today's dollars by backing out that sort of cost of financing or, or return that's, that's inherent uh, in, 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 in being able to compare those over time. So what a discounted cash flow model does is essentially say, let's project out those future cash flows. Let's make some assumptions about what the appropriate uh, rate of return is that we should have embedded in here. And now let's bring all those cash flows back to what they'd be in today's dollars. Let's sum them up, and that's our valuation. It's, it's a really important tool for rendering equivalent cash flows that are happening at different points in time. Yeah, so... Basically, kind of what I'm getting from this is right. This kind of cash flow kind of predicts the future because, we, as we all, as you and me both know, the future is uncertain. It's always been uncertain. So it's yep. it's this kind of idea of seeing if investors are actually making a right decision if they're valuing this company at an accurate price for future references. Kind of that idea. Yeah, yeah. And and one way to think about it is if you're more uncertain about the future. You probably think that future dollar is worth less than it would be otherwise. So you discount it more because you think it's more uncertain. You think it's more risky. And so there's a lot of work. There's a lot of finance, uh, a lot of, of theory and practice that goes into doing a really good job of those kinds of valuation models. And hopefully you and some of your listeners will be doing that kind of work someday because we need people doing it well. Great. Uh, Dean Nelson, it, it was a pleasure talking to you, and I know my listeners would are going to love listening to you. So thank you again. It's my pleasure, too. Take care. I'm glad everybody's listening. Thank you so much for Logan. This is fun. Thanks again for tuning in. Hopefully you uh, learned something new from this episode. Take care and stay safe.